Hello, and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm James on Simpson, Investment Director from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about inflation, growth, and the market today. For once, we're actually recording this podcast from the office. However, we'll use in advance for any technical issues. We're recording this on Tuesday, 1st of June. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Good morning, Ben. I promise not to ask you any crypto questions today. However, the key thing that the market is focused on the moment is inflation, with the outside prints that we've seen in the latest numbers. But one thing I'm also particularly interested in is, is there, what are the impacts of the contributory factors to these numbers? And is there a chance of any erroneous readings with sort of one-off op- opening factors leading to outside contributions? Or, or even if we look back a decade to the financial crisis, are, are we seeing impacts of break-even rates deviating away from real inflation expectations as investors are reallocating their portfolios between long-based and short-dated debt or, or other assets? Uh, thanks, James. Um, yeah, I, I think inflation is is very much a, a topic in focus, and it's right to highlight some of some of the nuances. And I think this is something that we've tried on our side to be to to talk about for a few months. And I think there's a few nuances as you highlight coming through. Um, for a start, I think we need to distinguish between backward-looking inflation, the year-on-year numbers that's uh, it, that's talked about a lot in in the mainstream press and on the news, uh, and the forward-looking story. Now, the two, obviously, there's there's an interplay between them, but I think it, it's something that it's worth dwelling a little bit more on because there are some short-term distortions. And our forecast, for example, we think inflation is likely to have peaked in May for a number of reasons before falling back. But remember, that May peak doesn't get reported until late June, early July in different parts of the world. I think as we look back, what's driving inflation prices higher at the moment seems to be some relatively isolated factors. Uh, It is things like base effects. That's where we're comparing normalized-ish prices now to very depressed prices last year. If you think back to, to last year, we had oil prices and other input prices fall to very low levels because there was a collapse in demand while supply carried on. And at one point, the price of oil fell briefly below minus $35 a barrel. So simply comparing abnormally low prices last year to prices now leads to those base effects uh, and those spikes. And one tends to look through those because they'll move through the reporting cycle. And as we get later in the year, some of those factors will dissipate. There are also anomalies. It was very difficult to find some of the uh, some of the price of goods in the middle of a pandemic. So, so some prices became stale. And as those get updated, those come through. And there are other factors. Um, simple things like clothing sales have an impact. Obviously, January 2020, there were January sales, so the price of clothes uh, dropped in a seasonably predictive way. We didn't have January sales this year, uh, so obviously that that impact as well. So we tend to look through those base effect points. 
The other aspect to look at as well, I think if you look at some of the short-term effects, these aren't strictly base effects. These are short-term increases in prices. And I think a lot of this is down to normal scarcity effects. So if you look at things like hotels or pubs where there's limited availability, uh, we're seeing them in, in parts of the market in, in lumber. If you've tried to buy a shed recently, as I have, you'll know how much the, the price of wood has gone up in the short term. I think a lot of these are short-term scarcity effects that will resolve hopefully as some of these these bottlenecks start to come through. And I think what's going to be really important is to determine how much of those become persistent. And I think it is worth highlighting. You know, many people are probably happy to pay a few quid more for things like pub food, particularly at the moment when there is uh, enforced savings. A lot of consumers are cash rich. And I think they'll be very happy to spend a few more pounds on that. Some businesses as well trying to have a little bit of a catch up what has been a very difficult year, particularly in, in services and hospitality, increasing those prices. So those may persist for, say, a 12-month period or so into the future. The question is, will they be able to do that year on year? My sense is probably not. It's probably a one-off from this is playing catch up the excess savings from from the enforced savings we've had over the last 12 months but that's not guaranteed and the risk i think is that trend pushes inflation higher on a medium term basis and as for whether or not it's uh, it's driven by technicals i don't think it is you're right to highlight that one of the measures that we look at, the break-even inflation, this is a market measure of expected inflation, but that's driven off buying patterns between inflation-protected or inflation-linked securities and conventional government bonds. Um, and those can be driven by uh, short-term impacts, just people buying and selling different parts of the market. But I think at the moment, it does look like a sort of more normalized measure. If we look in the US, for example, we tend to use the US for, for a sense of, of what might happen globally. There we see break-evens around 2.4%, was as high as 2.6% at some point last month. Uh, but that's been fairly persistent. And we can look at other measures rather than the 10-year break-even. We can look at what's called a five-year, five-year uh, inflation uh, contract. This is uh, this is market expectations for the five-year average inflation in five years' time, so it's the back end of that of that 10-year. And that's coherent with, with the break-even rate as well. It's currently 2.3, was as high as 2.4 slightly lower but if you take out some of the short-term inflation measures those, those those signals seem to be coherent so that's what we're looking at i think there are some base effects we can largely look through there are some one-offs that we need to check whether or not they do become persistent and that's why i think that year-on-year -year number is likely to spike for may before dipping back it's the higher level that falls back to that will be important and i think it's some it, it, it's a it, it's a topic i think we are going to keep revisiting because i think now most investors are comfortable that inflation is like likely to rise because that year-on-year -year number is gaining. I think for us, it's going to be hard in the second half of the year. Once the main number's been reported and that year-on-year -year number starts dropping back, I think there's a risk that, inflated, that investors think that inflation story's gone away. And it hasn't, to my mind, is where does that number settle to? And I think it will be at a more elevated level. So I think we need to keep banging on this drum because inflation in the medium term is likely to persist above target. I think it can be more challenging keeping that messaging going as that year-on-year -year number is, is dipping back.
After March and April of last year, markets around the world have actually been very good at looking through what's happening on a day-to-day basis and looking to the future. However, this does mean that they are particularly sensitive to the impact of of different data. Um, And one thing that we are wondering is that, is it possible the markets are becoming too tightly wound as the COVID crisis continues on? And, you know, one of other numbers, such as, you know, in the US, we saw a big jobs report miss uh, last month and the impact they might have on, on investor expectations. I think that it it speaks a lot to the state that the market is in at the moment. We, we've talked previously, you know, markets are appearing to take a breather. There are some reasons in the very short term to be uh, maybe a little bit wary. Um, and I think a lot of it ties in with what, what markets are expecting. So you highlighted the jobs report, and obviously that's been the, the biggest, um, arguably the biggest economic data point over the last month. Um, as the US is reopening, markets were expecting a million jobs to have been added um, in the month of April. And in fact, only 266,000 were, so around a quarter of expectation. And there were some downward revisions to, to the previous reading. And that was uh, a little bit of a surprise. It is worth highlighting, though, US non-farm payroll number is quite a volatile series anyway. Um, you quite often get these odd numbers and revisions. Revisions go back for, for a sort of roughly two-month period. So it's usually a better gauge on a two, three, four-month uh, period when you can start to see trends emerging. But nonetheless, it was a shock. And, and certainly, labour markets in general is something that uh, economists and investment strategists are trying to get their head around. In terms of shocks, though, I think the prevailing paradigm at the moment is one of economic reopening. We're starting to see inflationary pressures, we just mentioned, starting to come through, uh, ultimately leading to a normalisation in monetary policy. And that's what everyone's thought process on average is at the moment, potentially some fiscal stimulus persisting as well. And I think anything detracting from that is what can cause some consternation in markets. So anything that feeds in with that narrative, um, gradually rising uh, numbers such as retail sales, industrial production uh, and employment data feed into that story. Anytime you do see a surprise either to the upside or the downside, it's the surprise, I think, that, that's, that's hitting markets. And particularly as that, that paradigm has been established through the course of the last 12 months or now heading towards 18 months, because markets were a little bit in flux. I think surprising numbers were were largely expected, bearing in mind that was a period when when markets were very volatile anyway. Now we're seeing that that volatility in markets really fall back. These these surprise numbers can have a short-term impact, forcing investors to to, to reassess their outlook. From our point of view, these headline numbers are interesting, um, but what we try and do as a firm is look in much finer detail at those numbers, really some of the, the, the early stage input numbers that go into these headline readings. It, it's similar with inflation, but things like uh, when we look at employment, we look at surveys of what employers expect to be spending over the next 12 months. Uh, particularly in the US, you can look at the proportion of employers, particularly small firms that a bit like the UK make up the majority actually of, uh, of the employed workforce. You can look at measures of how difficult or easy they're finding it to Fill, uh, to fill vacancies as well. So we tend to move ahead of these and we tend to look at a more robust series. But again, anything that's a shock to that outlook
work, I think, can can have an impact. I think the other thing we're seeing at the market at the moment that suggests maybe there's already a lot of optimism, we can look at market measures such as bull bear ratios, put call ratios, all of which indicate maybe there's a lot of optimism already priced in. I think the other aspect that was interesting, if you look at uh, the earnings season, we're largely through now, particularly in the US, um, whenever you saw companies beat expectations to the upside, had a marginal pop to their share price, but nothing to write home about. It's where they missed to the low side or other aspects came in uh, that were potentially negative. We saw a lot of companies disproportionately punished. And I think that just speaks to a market environment where there's a lot of good news priced in. So any misses on that, particularly on the downside, do get, tend to get punished a little bit more. But again, they tend to be much shorter term effects and they can uh, moderate through in the medium term. And now a little closer to home, we're starting to see labour shortages uh, in certain areas of the market, such as retail and hospitality. To what extent do you think that the COVID restrictions are actually covering up the impact of Brexit? I think the employment environment is is something to to look at, especially closely. In the UK, unemployment is actually at a relatively low level. Um, It dipped last month from 4.9% to 4.8%, which is is pretty robust. It's not as low as the 3.8%. We saw uh, the low point in uh, in 2019, but that reading itself was the lowest since the 1970s. The other measures we look at, underemployment, so you can look at the number of people that are employed part-time, for example, but who would like a, a full-time measure. We've seen that drop to a pretty low low level too. And I think a lot of that has been complicated by, by the furlough scheme. Um, obviously different in the, in the UK to the US. In the UK, a lot of people have been kept in employment through fiscal policy, the furlough scheme, that's helping keep that number low. And more broadly, I think what COVID has done is provide cover for some of that fiscal measures, particularly things like furlough, but also the monetary policy needed um, to, to keep the, the UK economy ticking over. You'll recall there were expectations before COVID kicked off as we were heading into Brexit. You know, the government kept what it called the fiscal headroom, so the ability to deploy a bit of stimulus to, to kickstart the economy. The Bank of England governors uh, have also, for the last few years, both Mark Carney and Andrew Bailey, loosely indicated before COVID that interest rates would be higher, so monetary policy would be a little bit tighter now were we not going through the the Brexit scenarios. So all of that actually, COVID has provided a lot of cover um, that the fiscal and monetary stimulus response uh, that we'd have needed to to deal with Brexit has been completely swamped by COVID. So from that regard, it's effectively allowed uh, allowed authorities off the hook um, through the deployment of, of that stimulus. That said, I think particularly on the point of um, of the employment scenario, particularly in the UK, we do potentially still have a reckoning, and this might be broadened out globally. But even in the UK, uh, I think at some point, monetary stimulus will need to be withdrawn. The government is looking to withdrawing some of these uh, fiscal support measures, the furlough scheme, business continuity measures, including grants and loans. And at some point, those are going to have to be withdrawn and there is the potential that we do see rising unemployment of business failures later on uh, in the cycle particularly the economy is forced to stand on its own two feet and I think some of the dynamics around Brexit will potentially shine through there a little bit. Um, on a 
on a closely related note as well, there have been some reports uh, that the, uh, if you look at the NHS, so some of those poorly received, um, very weak wage increases for NHS staff that's been gathering a lot of political attention and news flow. There's some reports that the government expectations that unemployment and some of the wage pressures in the private sector might come under pressure as furlough and, and business continuity schemes roll off. Might mean that we see that rising unemployment, downward pressure on wages, and that in turn could make a sort of flat environment for the NHS staff appear potentially attractive. Again, reports that, that, that I've heard of, of maybe discussions that are being had in government. So I think we'll need to see what happens once we're through this period and we attempt to have normalisation of, uh, of policy. There, there are also similar uh, events happening in the US. Um, there, the US is finding it relatively difficult. Certainly the small business surveys are implying it's quite difficult to hire workers. Um, we've had to have these wage increases come through. Again, that's potentially crowding out uh, in the US or, or a form of moral hazard. The enhanced unemployment benefits being seen in the US is meaning employers having to compete with that scheme by raising wages. And again, as policy starts to normalise, some of that may go into reverse. So that, that's clearly a close one for us to be watching. And now on to markets directly. One of the surprises so far this year has been the performance of European markets. Do we view this more of a catch-up or, or of years of underperformance, or because they actually Europe has better actual prospects looking forward? Also, Ben, do you, do you think this foreshadows stronger UK market performance? I, I think, as always, that there are a lot of moving parts we need to think about. Certainly, Europe uh, and the UK, one would expect in market terms, are, are likely to a period of catch-up. The US market and economy have both done very well. The market has benefit, benefited arguably from some compositional effects, particularly, I know we keep talking about it, but the US market, mega cap tech, the likes of Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, those have benefited from the stay-at-home trade has probably helped the US market. In a way, it hasn't helped the, the European market, particularly the UK market, which, is, uh, which has a greater proportion of financials, oil and gas uh, and materials. So from a market point of view, both Europe and the UK at the margin may be due a little bit of catch up versus versus the US. Not necessarily a long term strategic position if you're focused on uh, on companies, you can look anywhere in the world. But if you're looking specifically at the market, I'd say the UK and Europe are probably due a little bit of a catch up from a market point of view. I think also if you look at, at the economies, there is some expectation pan Europe might follow the, the US uh, paradigm. We saw earlier in the year, the US opened a lot earlier. That didn't close down as much as uh, as those of us on this side of the Atlantic. That may mean what we saw before, the increase in industrial production, the increase in retail sales may start to come through uh, over here. And that's certainly what we've seen over the last month or so. We're looking at, for that to form a trend. So there's potential there as well. There are some reasons to think that the that there may be differentiating factors as well. If you look at Europe, it's noteworthy that the European Central Bank has ploughed a slightly different uh, furrow to the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. The Federal Reserve and the Bank of England actually were quite relaxed about uh, the rising yields and highlighted this is what we'd expect for a normalising economy. And that's what really allowed yields to rise quite aggressively uh, over the first half of this year. The fact central banks weren't leaning against them. Conversely, the European Central Bank came out very early and said they weren't particularly 
happy with rising rates. They wanted to maintain a particularly easy monetary policy to allow the economic recovery to come through. And that might spur a potential pickup, both in markets and the economy. Um, it might make it harder for them to, to push back later in the cycle. But the, Europe has been in a bit of a quagmire for most of the last decade. So it does potentially have some 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 pickup to come. Uh, and the ECB policy may support that. And that could come through in markets as well. Yesterday, the OECD increased 2021 global growth expectations from 4.2% to 5.8%, citing vaccine rollout success around the world. How much does the impact on non-equity asset classes? Well, this is this is the really interesting point uh, and the million-dollar question. I think, broadly speaking, our strategy um, that's reflected in other parts of, uh, of the market as well um, is positive for equities economic recovery, rising earnings potential, business investment, etc. But it is a relatively high-risk asset class. And most people will have uh, multi-asset portfolios sticking to their, their risk pro- relevant risk profile, which inevitably means diversifying that equity exposure with some non-equity positions. And I think the increased growth expectations uh, do have meaningful impacts, particularly in the likes of, of fixed income. And we need to think think through the implications. The reason the growth expectations have picked up noticeably uh, in, in the relatively recent past is largely a factor of fiscal stimulus. There's been acceleration with the Biden administration and the Democrats taking uh, full control of uh, both the Senate and House of Representatives. That's increased the expectation for short-term fiscal stimulus. And other governments, the UK and elsewhere, have been talking similar. And really, this is more of a sequencing effect. What most forecasters were expecting was fiscal stimulus over the next sort of decade, certainly the next few years to be a bit spread out that would lead to incremental growth uh, through a few periods. What's now likely is potentially more fiscal stimulus in the short term, effectively front loading, but then looking to recoup that. uh, And there'll be lots of talk uh, of paying back for the stimulus over the next few years. And, you know, we've heard that from Biden. We've heard that from uh, Rishi Sunak in the UK. This idea that we're going to have to pay for some of this in due course. And Biden's longer term fiscal plans are designed to be neutral with the increase in taxation, corporate tax rates, the risk around the edge of increasing personal tax. All of that is trying to make this look like a fiscally neutral um, scenario, which potentially implies more in the short term, potentially less slightly further out. And I think what that means is the likelihood of rising real rates. If you're a central bank, you've got monetary policy, and you're also looking at the fiscal policy in government. And I think the more fiscal stimulus you see coming through, the more cautious as a central banker you're likely to be. Central banks are very concerned that excess fiscal and monetary stimulus leads to inflation. So the more that happens in the fiscal environment potentially means the less more tightening that central banks may have in the back of their minds. That largely feeds through to the inflation expectations we're seeing at the moment and the likelihood of rising uh, rising rates in the medium term. That's an unattractive environment, I think, for core government bonds, um, ultimately leading to, to rising uh, government bonds, uh, bond rates. That impacts other part of fixed income as well. So I think relatively unattractive parts of the market include you know, full duration, 
US Treasuries, UK gilts. There's a marginal argument for inflation protected securities, particularly if you think risks are tilted to the upside. Um, but you know, already elevated inflation expectations are baked into those. So you're you're looking to those those parts of the market for an an acceleration of uh, inflation expectations, not just elevated levels. Um, I think there's more scope to do a little bit more with credit. Of course, credit has a little bit more correlation with, with equity, so you need to factor that in. But I think if you're particularly looking to keep your duration short, which gives you less exposure to, to interest rate sensitivity, more to, to credit. And I think there's a relatively positive environment for corporate credit. And then again, I, I think you can look to, to parts of alternatives. Gold has had another relatively solid run uh, and potentially a reasonable environment for, for, for gold. The rising rates puts, uh, puts that a little bit of, uh, a little bit of risk. Uh, and again, in the absolute return space, there should be strategies out there that you can uh, try and find and certainly we look for that should be able to perform uh, regardless of uh, regardless of the interest rate cycle and what's happening more broadly so again some scope there as well one asset class we've yet to cover is commodities and specifically oil with the opening up of the global economy and the drawing down of the supply cut that's created last year what are the implications of this on global growth also, one of the interesting things happened recently, with access investors gaining board seats at ExxonMobil to try and force it to cut oil and gas productions and invest in renewables, will they make this worse? Well, two very interesting and very topical questions, sort of sub-questions, I think, within that. One is the, the meat the short to medium term, what, what's likely to happen with oil prices. The oil price often reflects uh, expectations for economic activity. We had the huge supply gut, as you highlighted, last year. It's very difficult to shut supply down that quickly as demand created. Now demand is starting to pick back up. Um, I think that's reflected in the oil price. It's now normalized. It's sitting in, in the sort of 60 to $70 range. Um, that's a, a relatively recent trading range and implies a relatively normalized environment, I think. What is interesting, uh, if if the oil price gets too low, that's often taken as a negative signal for markets, implying that in aggregate, the market thinks that economic activity will collapse. Equally, if it gets too high, because obviously we all need uh, oil, not only in terms of our own uh, own cars, obviously there's a shift going globally on uh, in that arena at the moment, but it's not just our cars, it's all of the, the goods that get shipped. So, you know, fuel for ships, fuel for haulage uh, around, the, uh, around the country, all of that feeds in. And if that oil price gets too high, it can act on a drag on activity as well. I think what's different this time compared to previous cycles, always a dangerous statement, I know, but we have got the rise of shale, oil and gas. Uh, and one factor of, of shale is it can be turned on and turned off relatively quickly. So whereas if you're uh, pumping oil from traditional producers, uh, onshore and offshore in particular, once you've dug the well, you then need to, to uh, harvest that oil for a, a longer period of time and you're subject to more price fluctuation. Shale tends to produce only for a year or two. So if you do see the oil price starting to rise above the, the point that those wells are profitable, it's now relatively quick uh, and not particularly expensive to drill a well, start pumping oil, and you can sell a lot of that oil forward in the market. And that allows you to, um, to some extent, try and lock in that higher price. And that can act as a bit of a cap. You see the oil price rising dramatically, more of these shale oil producers can, can come online. Now, there are risks to that outlook and there are some technicalities 
around shale oil. But that should act in the medium term to stop prices getting uh, getting too high. Um, and it's possible that you know some some other research, some other producers can come online. Uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC can increase production to, to bring that back under control. So I think the oil price is probably going to remain in a relatively broad trading range for the medium term. Not too low to cause worries, but not too high to, to drag uh, to, to drag on uh, economic activity. And I think OPEC that were driving the price of oil lower over the last few years as sort of proxy war with shale or producers. I think that period has moved has moved through. Obviously, things can always spark renewed geopolitical tensions, but hopefully the signals are that that's, that that's been normalised. I think what's more interesting uh, or more, more relevant maybe is the, is the second point you highlight, the rise of activists in, in large companies such as ExxonMobil. And this is really key. It's something we've been focusing on for a long time. I think given all of the concerns over uh, the climate uh, at the moment, and I think that's a trend that's only going to increase. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on these oil companies to do more. You know, we've seen activist investors. We've seen recently as well some of the courts start starting to turn against companies. Uh, there's pressure on Shell, for example, to start um, re- reducing some of the, the harm they're doing and hit emissions targets even sooner. I think that is going to be a theme that continues, and that's likely to weigh on these oil and gas producers, and that's a theme that ties in with our, our ESG considerations, not just saying that this is good for the planet, obviously it is, but a secondary impact is what regulatory impact is that going to have on oil and gas majors. It's the, the investment reason as well, rather than just the purely good for the planet. I think increasingly these companies will come under pressure. We already talk about stranded assets, that's oil, particularly uh, in the Arctic and other places, but it seems increasingly likely these companies just won't be able to access um, because the paradigm shifting. And as more of these come through, uh, I think what appear very attractive businesses at points in the cycle, this longer term risk from activist investors, from uh, governments and from, uh, for, from courts trying to bring a lot of these externalities onto their balance sheet. That's a, a key reason why Fundamentally, I think you have to think twice these days about investing in oil and gas. Not to say you'd never want to do it. I think tactically it can make a lot of sense. But I think the strategic tide is moving against these companies. And that's something that is going to be borne out um, in many of our strategies. But I think it's going to be a broader global phenomenon. Ben, thank you as always for your thoughtful and insightful comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. But if anyone has any feedback, questions or comments, please do send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. And thank you for listening.